So the, the Huffington Post, uh, you know, it's an online news source. They, uh, they published an article recently titled, If Everyone Likes You, Then You're Doing Something Wrong. All right, that was the title. If everyone likes you, then you're doing something wrong. And the basic premise of the article was that in order to get everyone to like you, the only way that everyone will like you is if you have no opinions and you stand for nothing. You have no convictions. And I think that's very true. I think if you look at the great people throughout history, people that we look up to, people who stood for things, people who made a difference and brought about real change, they they were people that we look up to, but those people had enemies in their days, right? There were people who didn't like them because of what they stood for. And the reason is because if you really stand for something, if people really know where you stand on, on different issues and areas, the stronger your conviction, the stronger you stand by it, the stronger a reaction it will elicit from other people, right? If you really stand for something, it elicits strong reactions. Some people will like you and they will really like you the stronger you stand for something and other people at the same time will dislike you in a strong way. That's, for example, right? Um, Black jelly beans. You either love them or you hate them. People, this divides the world. There are only two kinds of people, right? The people who like black jelly beans, the people who don't. Uh, There are a lot of foods like that. Why? Because those foods have strong flavors, and strong flavors elicit strong reactions. The same is true of people. The stronger your flavor, the more you stand for something, the more people will be divided in their feelings about you. Obviously, the greatest example of this is Jesus Christ. He stood for something. People knew what he stood for. He had a strong flavor, and because of that, he elicited strong reactions in people. Some people loved him so much that they left everything to go and follow him. They gave their whole lives for him. Ultimately, they died for him. But other people were so threatened by him, they disliked him, they hated him so much that they were determined to kill him, and they did, in fact, kill him. How about, think about a a more modern example, Abraham Lincoln. Polls have shown that regularly Americans consider Abraham Lincoln to be the greatest president the United States has ever had. Why? Because he stood for something. Whether Whether people agreed with him or not, he definitely stood for something. And a lot of people loved him, but a lot of people also hated him. And he was murdered by those people who opposed him. Another one would be Martin Luther King Jr., right? People either loved him or they hated him because they knew what he stood for. He had a strong flavor, and that strong flavor elicited strong reactions. Jerry Garcia, right, the, uh, the front man for the, the band The Grateful Dead, he said this once about The Grateful Dead and their music. He said, we're kind of like licorice. Not everybody likes licorice, but the people who like licorice really like licorice, right? Now, now check this out. I did some research. Uh, do you know who is the most well-liked, most widely liked figure in the whole world, right? Who is the most widely liked figure in the whole world? Ronald McDonald, okay? Ronald McDonald. I'm not, I looked this up. Chances are most of you in here don't have very strong feelings about Mr. McDonald, right? You either, you you don't really hate him, you don't really love him, you're not devoted to him, you just kind of, he's there and yeah, you're all right with him, right? The reason Ronald McDonald is so well-liked is because, well, first of all, he's not a real person, and second of all, he doesn't really stand for anything of great consequence. You see, it's not about being controversial. It's not about being adversarial just for the sake of it. It's about standing for something and having real convictions and being about something. And if you do that, some people will love you for it, and some people will not. And that's exactly the place where David finds himself here in 1 Samuel chapter 18. 
In the previous chapter, which we studied the last two weeks, we saw that David killed Goliath, right? This giant. And in chapter 18 here, we're going to see what happened after that, right? The aftermath of the Goliath incident. This event, taking on Goliath and defeating him, this is something that boosted David from complete obscurity into national fame. He's a hero now. He's a household name. He's the guy who stood up against the Philistines when no one else would. He's the man who took away the reproach from the nation. No one else was willing to stand up against uh, Goliath and fight him except for a shepherd boy who had bold faith in a great God and he was willing to step out and fight and act on that faith. Who wouldn't love that guy, right? Who wouldn't love somebody like that? Well, there's somebody who doesn't love him, and his name's Saul. And we're going to see that in this chapter. You see, Saul, the, the king of Israel, he's the one who should have stepped up and fought Goliath. Did we read about Saul that he was the tallest man in the, in the nation? And so as the tallest man, as the commander of the troops, he should have been the one to step forward and fight Goliath. But he didn't. And as more and more people love David and admire David and look up to David, Saul is going to become very jealous. He's going to begin to hate David because of his own insecurities. And he's going to feel threatened by David's success and David's popularity. And here's why. Because David took a stand for something. And as always happens, when you take a stand for something, it has a polarizing effect on people. Some people will love David for this thing that he did, the thing he stood for, and some people will hate him. Saul's kids, we're going to see here in chapter 18, Saul's kids love David passionately, but Saul himself will be increasingly jealous of David. And so the title of today's message is Love and Jealousy. Love and jealousy, that's what we see here in this chapter. If you'd please read along with me in your Bibles. Uh, this is 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David, when David finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. After David defeated Goliath, we read that Saul brought him in for kind of a debriefing, it seems. Uh, he brought him in, they had a, a conversation. Saul brought David into the palace and they talked. And because of David's great heroic deed in fighting Goliath, and, and because of David's instant fame throughout Israel, Saul invites David basically to come on staff with him full time, right? To, he says, David, no more going home to your father's house to tend the sheep. You're not a shepherd anymore, David. You're going to live with me here in the palace, and you're going to, you know, work with me from now on. Jonathan, Saul's son, we've met him before, especially back in chapter 14. But Jonathan, Saul's son, he was also there in the room while Saul and David are having this conversation after David defeated Goliath. And it seems that whatever was said in that room behind those closed doors, whatever it was that David said during that conversation, it stirred Jonathan up in his soul. So that as a result of this conversation, it says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and it caused Jonathan to love David as his own soul. I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear that conversation, right? We can only imagine what was said in that room that day behind those closed doors, which just caused Jonathan's heart to be stirred up, that caused it to be set on fire. It seems that David, he, he laid his heart out there for, for King Saul. He told him about his faith in the living God and his desire to act upon that faith, 
right? And, and as Jonathan heard these words, right? As Jonathan hears David talking about how he wants to step out and he wants to trust God and he wants to be used by God, Jonathan's heart is just set on fire. He's stirred up inside and he, he realizes that he and David are kindred spirits, right? They have the same heart for God. You know, Saul and Jonathan, even though they were father and son, they, they were very different people. And we can, you know, gather that from the things that they say and the things that they do. Jonathan is a man of faith. Jonathan's a man of action. Jonathan believes in the power of God. Jonathan trusts in the promises of God. Again, like I said, we first met Jonathan back in chapter 14. Saul, he was Saul's right-hand man. He was like the number two guy in the military there. And Saul, at that point in chapter 14, was ready to give up and concede defeat to the Philistines. They were outnumbered. They were surrounded. They, they were in trouble. But Jonathan said, you know what? I'm not going to give up. He says, I'm going to make a bold step of faith, a brave step of faith. And he says to his armor bearer, come on, let's go check out the garrison of the Philistines. and Let's see if God might want to do something great through us today. Let's see if God might want to bring deliverance even through us. He says, it doesn't matter if there's only two of us, for the Lord can save by many or by few. And so as Jonathan is hearing David share his heart, he realizes that he and David are kindred spirits, that they share the same heart for God. And, and I, I wonder, how about you? Do you have anybody in your life who is like that? Somebody who you, you hear them talk about God or you see them and you say, man, that's the kind of person I want to spend a lot of time with. That person's heart beats for the same things that my heart beats for. Their heart burns for the same passions that my heart burns for. You know, I've had a number of people like that in my life. In fact, I would even say that my wife was one of those people. When we first met, we were serving together in Hungary. We were serving as missionaries. Um, we were both single at the time, and we were doing mission work together. We worked in a, in a refugee camp together a couple days a week, and we served in a church. And, and I remember thinking about my wife and thinking, man, you know, if I ever get married, I want to marry somebody just like her, right? Somebody whose heart burns with the same passions as mine. Somebody who loves the Lord like I do. Somebody who wants their whole life to be spent and poured out for the Lord and for his mission. And then it didn't take me very long to realize, well, if I want to marry somebody just like her, I guess I could just marry her, right? Uh, but there are a number of people in my life too who, are, who I would say are kindred spirits, right? They have the same heart for the Lord. And, and that's the, it's the foundation of our bond together. And I'll tell you what, that creates a much deeper bond than just liking the same sports teams or having the same hobbies, right? When you share that same heart with somebody, it, it creates a bond that's thicker than blood. And that was the foundation for this lifelong friendship. That's what this is going to be between David and Jonathan. It's going to be the picture of what friendship can be. Jonathan and David, they will be together through thick and thin. Jonathan is going to stand by David through David's darkest moments. And when Jonathan dies, David will say this. This is in 2 Samuel. He says, uh, after Jonathan dies, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Now that verse has led some to believe that Jonathan and David were more than just friends, that they were actually lovers. But, but I think it's very clear here that what David is, was talking about is a deep friendship. This is a picture of what friendship can be, how deep it can go, how they can have a bond with somebody that is more profound than any romantic relationship could be. 
because the bond that they had, it was founded on this spiritual bond of having the same heart for God, the same desires to serve God and be used by God. Now, at the same time that Jonathan David had a lot in common, right? They're about the same age. They, they had the same heart for God. There were some significant differences between them. Most specifically this. Jonathan was the firstborn son of a king. David was the lastborn son of a farmer. And, and being the firstborn son of a king, this made Jonathan more than just a prince. Jonathan was the crown prince. That means that he is the the heir to the throne of Israel. You see, when you really think about it, right? Saul is very threatened by David's popularity, but Jonathan is the one who actually has the most to lose. He stands to lose the most from David's popularity and David's success. But yet Jonathan isn't threatened by David. He's not. He, Jonathan has a heart for God. He has this heart and this desire. His, his heart and his desires, his whole life, they're submitted to God's heart and God's desires. And whatever God wants for Jonathan's life, Jonathan says, that's what I want, whatever it is. And that is such a different attitude than the attitude we see in Saul, who is absolutely determined to do whatever he wants to do, no matter what God thinks about it, whether God likes it or not. So check out what Jonathan does next. It's quite incredible, really. From verse 3 it says that Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul and Jonathan took off the robe that was on him this is his princely robe and he gave it to David with his armor even to the sword and his bow and his belt okay think about this these two men are on track for the same throne right basically they are competitors for the same throne but yet they make this covenant of friendship this covenant of devotion to each other which will prove stronger than jealousy stronger than envy stronger than ambition Jonathan strips himself of his robes and his armors and gives them to David this is an incredibly symbolic action right this by doing this Jonathan is saying to David I see the hand of God upon you. I see what God is doing in you. I recognize that God has called you to be the next king of Israel. And he says, you know what? I don't want to compete with you. I don't want to fight the will of God. I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to give it up. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to submit my life to the will of God and say, Lord, your will be done, whatever it is for my life. I think this is an incredible thing that Jonathan does here. This is something that very few people would be capable or willing to do. And I would even say this, of all of Jonathan's bold acts of faith and trust in God, I think this was the greatest, right? Even more so than taking on the garrison of the Philistines. This takes a mighty heart. This takes true trust in God to give up your rights and submit your whole life to the will of God. Jonathan is a hero in his own right. He didn't look at David as a co competitor, as competition to him. He didn't at all. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he saw what God was doing, and he surrendered to the will of God, and he hands over his princely garments to David as a way of saying, there's no competition between us. Whatever God wants, I'm on board. You know, Saul, think about this. Saul was determined to hold on to his position. His attitude was, if you want to take my crown, you can pry it out of my cold, dead hands. And basically, unfortunately, that is what's going to happen. 
Jonathan does just the opposite. He hands it over, he lays it down and says, God, whatever you want, I'm on board, right? And think about this. Saul, with his attitude, Saul will go down in infamy, whereas Jonathan will be exalted eternally. And the question is the same for each and every one of us here today. Are you willing to get off the throne of your life? Are you willing to get off the throne of your life? Are you willing to hand over control of your life over to the God who loves you so much that he became the good shepherd who gave his life for you? Jonathan was willing to do that. And and he's a great example for us that we also do the same. Verse five, so David went out wherever Saul sent him and he behaved wisely. And Saul sent him Uh, Saul set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and in all the sight of Saul's servants. Even though David knew that God had called him to be king even though he had been anointed as king already even though Jonathan the crown prince was prepared and ready to recognize him as king David is still fully submitted to Saul as king as long as Saul is on the throne he doesn't try to organize a coup he doesn't try to rally people behind him to fight against Saul and take over Uh, he just trusts in God's timing in God's will in God's promise and he's willing to patiently wait for the time when that promise becomes a reality and I really believe this is true that good leaders also know how to be good followers right I really believe that's true. That is certainly true of David, and you can see the opposite of that true in Saul. Saul goes and makes David a general in the army of Israel. You remember that David was probably too young to even serve in the army, but here he is now serving as a general. And it says that the people love David. David wasn't seeking popularity. This wasn't his goal to become popular. But his goal was to stand for what he believed in, to have convictions and to live by his convictions. And as he does that, as he makes a bold stand for active faith and active trust in a great God, uh, people are inspired. People gather behind him. For you note takers, uh, you might want to take a note of this. Here in chapter 18, verse 5, this is the high point of the book. This is kind of as good as it gets. Everything's good right now, right? Saul's happy, David's happy, everybody's happy. But after this, it's all going to go downhill. And it's not just going to go downhill. It's going to spiral out of control. Because what happens in the next few verses is going to change everything. It's going to set Saul off. It's going to totally change the way he feels about David. Let's see what happened. Verse 6. Now it happened as they were coming home that David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women who had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David with a jealous eye from that day forward. There's a popular song being sung by all the single ladies in in those days. And and when you get women singing songs about you, you, you have reached popularity. But when they sing songs about you in all the cities of Israel, you're not just popular, you're a celebrity. You know, it's been said that the greatest test of a person's character is not how they handle hardship, but how they handle success and popularity and celebrity. 
That's the greatest test of a person's character. And many fail that test. Saul himself failed this test, right? People let success and power go to their heads. And we read all the time about successful people who do really dumb things because they've started to believe that they're an exception to the rule, right? That they're different, that the rules that apply to everybody else don't apply to them. Like I said, Saul failed this test. Saul, we read, started out as a humble man, but after he had some success, he let it all go to his head and he changed and he stopped caring what God wanted and he stopped caring what was best for the people and he started caring only about popularity and what, what people thought about him. Now, if you look down a few verses to verse 14, this is what we read about David, that David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. What that means is that even in the midst of his popularity, David behaved wisely in all his ways. Fame, success, and popularity, you know, these are fleeting things. They're fleeting things. Anybody who's ever gotten these things has realized how, how fleeting they are, right? And if you build your life on, and you build your identity on these things, fame, success, popularity, you are setting yourselves up for a fall. And that's exactly what happens to Saul right now, actually, right? It's been said this, that, that people are corrupted by praise and popularity to the same degree that they are crushed by scorn and criticism. When Saul first hears the, the song that all the single ladies are singing, he likes it. The first verse is really catchy. He, he's into it, right? Saul has slain his thousands. Yeah, this is a great song, right? But then he gets to the second verse. And Saul's mood changes completely. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And suddenly, Saul isn't happy anymore. He doesn't like that song anymore. And Saul becomes angry, and his heart is filled with jealousy. In verse 9, many of your translations will include that word jealousy. They'll say, from this time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul is jealous of David's popularity, feels threatened by David's success. It, it's a sign of Saul's insecurity. In our, in our church in Hungary, when I was pastoring over there, we had a lot of weddings because we had a lot of young people in our church. And, uh, and there was this one lady in the church, she was in her 30s, she desperately wanted to get married. And she told me one time, she said, please tell these people to stop inviting me to their weddings because I'm not gonna go. And I said, well, well what's wrong? You know, what's going on? She said, I'm just allergic to weddings, right? Well, she's obviously not allergic to weddings. The, the issue is that when somebody else got married, it reminded her of the fact that she wasn't married and, and she was unable to be happy for their happiness. Now God's word tells us this. It says in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But here's the thing. I think that if we're all completely 100% honest with ourselves, we have to admit that it's easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. You know why? Because when somebody's going through a hard time, it's easy to empathize with them and say, man, I can't imagine going through that myself. That would be so difficult. But when somebody is successful, especially when they're successful in an area where you are not or in an area where you desperately desire to be successful, oh man, it's so easy for your heart to be filled with jealous thoughts. And that, that green monster of envy can just take over your life and poison your mind and poison your heart. And you wonder, why her? Why him and not me? I want it more than they do, right? I, I'm working harder for it. Why them and not me? Do you remember the Grinch? Remember the, the movie, the Grinch, the guy who stole Christmas? You remember him? 
and you remember Grinch would sit on his hilltop and he would look down into Whoville and he was so upset that the people in Whoville were enjoying themselves that he would bite himself right right that's that's the kind of thing we're talking about and you got to ask yourself this question are you able to be happy for someone else's success even if they have success in an area where you don't or an area where you wish that you did and it's really a, a fundamental issue of the heart this issue of jealousy really gets down to the issue of contentment in regard to God's plan and God's will for your life you know what's interesting about Saul's jealousy and I think this is very characteristic of all of us and all of our where we get envious or jealous thing that's interesting about Saul's jealousy is that Saul was a very successful person in his own right I mean the guy is king right he lives in a palace right he, he's got everything going people are singing his praises people are singing Saul has killed his thousands they're singing songs these people weren't trying to insult Saul they were just happy they were happy that success had come to their nation right Saul's got so much going for him so people would people would fall over themselves to be in Saul's position they would love to be in that but because Saul's eyes were not focused on the many things that he did have, but he was focused on the few things that somebody else had that he didn't, Saul was discontent, and he was jealous, and he was envious. And I think that's generally true of, of most people that we get jealous or envious, and it's because we've taken our eyes off of what God has given us, the many things he has given us, and we've allowed our attention to be focused on the few things that other people have that we don't. And I think this is a major trap of the enemy to steal our joy. It gets us out of the place of thankfulness for how God has blessed us. And it gets us twisted and, and bitter because we're focused on what somebody else has that we don't. David, on the other hand, he's the very picture of contentment. He shows us what it means to be content with the will of God, the timing of God for your life. David's okay with being a shepherd. He's okay with working under Saul. He's okay with waiting 20 years to see God's promise fulfilled for his life. And because he's content with God's will for his life, David isn't corrupted by praise and he isn't crushed by criticism. He has a bulletproof soul. And his identity and his validation, they come from his relationship with God. And for that reason, he is able to be content in all circumstances. That's what Paul the Apostle said. He said, I have learned in whatever circumstances I'm in to be content. Contentment doesn't mean not having ambition. Contentment doesn't mean that you don't try to move forward or improve your situation. Contentment means that you trust in God's sovereignty in your life. And you're able to say, wherever I am today, wherever I am right now, I am here by the grace of God. And I am thankful for the ways that God has blessed me. And I don't need more. Not that I wouldn't take more. Not that I don't want to work for more. But I don't need more. Right? Sure, if it comes my way, more would be awesome, but I don't need it. I don't need it to validate me. I don't need it to affirm me. I don't need it to give me value. I am who I am. I am where I am by the grace of God who knows me and loves me and deals with me individually. I'm not going to let my heart be consumed. I'm not going to let my mind be consumed with thoughts about what other people have that I don't. But I'm going to fill my mind and my thoughts with thoughts of thankfulness and praise for the ways that God has blessed me and what he is doing in my life right now in my current circumstances you know one of the greatest keys to contentment is to get your eyes off of other people and to get your eyes on the Lord get your eyes on what how he has blessed you and what he is doing in your heart and in your life 
You know, if Saul would have done just that, this story would have ended differently. You know that? But instead, Saul is going to let this jealousy completely consume his life and reduce him to a small, bitter person. And ultimately, it's going to destroy him. Such a sad thing, especially when we consider all that Saul did have going for him and how God had blessed him. But Saul couldn't see those things. All he could see was what David had that he didn't. This story is a, this chapter is the story of love and jealousy. It's an example for us of what it looks like to trust God with our lives. And the, the warning here is it's a warning for us about the danger of envy. It's, example, it's an example here of how when you take a strong stand for something, it elicits strong reactions from people. And the same will be true of your life if you really choose to follow Jesus with your whole heart. On this topic of love and jealousy, I'm going to end with this. Interestingly, you know, we talk about people love David, people are jealous of David, but interestingly, the Bible tells us that God's love for us combines both of these elements, jealousy and love. All in one, it says that God loves us with a jealous love. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people that are confused by that. Maybe some of you here are like, yeah, you know, I've always thought that was a little bit weird, right? How is it that if jealousy is a bad thing, which it obviously is, like here in the life of Saul, how can it be that God would ascribe that characteristic to himself? How could it be that God would say that he is jealous, that he loves us with a jealous love? And the reason is because jealousy, there are different kinds of jealousy, right? There's different layers to the meaning of the word jealousy. If you look in your dictionary, you're going to find two or three definitions. I've got two up here for you, which I think really lay out the situation here in 1 Samuel 18. One definition of jealousy is what we've been talking about in regard to Saul. It's this. It's a, this is the definition. A feeling or showing of envy of someone of their achievements and advantages right that's one kind of jealousy that's the kind that Saul had towards David but there's another kind of jealousy and, and it's defined like this a fiercely protective uh, or vigilant or vigilant I'm sorry fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or possessions that's the kind of jealousy that God has in regard to us that's what it means that what that means is that he wants you to be fully his he doesn't want to share you he doesn't want you know that's why the first commandment God wants exclusivity in his relation with you that's why the the first commandment is you shall have no other gods beside me no other gods he says I want you I don't want you to have any other gods me and you you know this issue of jealousy comes up a lot when I do couples counseling you know, a lot of times I'll hear one party, you know, the wife or the husband say, you know, he's always jealous. You know, he, he doesn't like me talking to other men. He gets all upset about it. Or, or she's jealous. She's always asking me who I'm texting or where I've been or who I've been with. And my response is this. If you are married or if you're in a committed relationship moving towards marriage, then that kind of jealousy is not a bad thing, right? In fact, that's the way that God feels towards us in our relationship with him. Fiercely protective, vigilant of that exclusivity in the relationship. You know, we've developed a kind of a weird thing in Western culture in which we believe so much in the autonomy of the individual that we have lost the sense of belonging. We've lost the sense, the importance of belonging to family, belonging to a spouse, belonging even to a church, right? But what the Bible tells us, Ephesians 4.25, Paul the Apostle says, Don't you know you are members one of another? 
right? In other words, don't just think of yourself. Think of the body that you're part of. Don't just think of yourself. Think of the family that you're a part of. Don't just think of yourself. Think of the spouse that you are intimately knit and tied to. You aren't just two individuals living in the same household. Those are called roommates, right? You aren't those. No, when you get married, that's the whole point. You give up your autonomy. That's what the Bible's talking about. The two become one. In, in your family, you become intimately knit to the lives of the other people. And so, yes, they do have a right to know what you're doing, who you're texting. They have a right to be fiercely protective of the exclusivity of the relationship. Now, as a husband, I've had a few jealous moments. I love my wife with a jealous love, and I think it's natural. I don't want some other guy talking to my wife. She's my wife. If you want to have a wife, there's plenty of other people you can go find and be a wife with, right? When we first moved to Colorado, there was this guy from the dentist's office, right? My wife went to the dentist, and there's this guy from the dentist's office, Dr. Brian. I mentioned him at church once before. Those of you who were here like a year ago, you remember me? ranting about Dr. Brian. I don't like Dr. Brian. Let me just be clear. <laughs> because Dr. Brian starts calling my wife up on the phone, right? He starts sending her letters and he says, I'm excited about the future of our friendship. No, Dr. Brian, you will not have a future of a friendship with my wife. Go find somebody else to be friends with. Go find a, a bro or something. Go watch football. Don't spend time with my wife, right? Jealousy is wrong when you're jealous for something that doesn't belong to you, that you have no right over, right? Uh, but, but there's a good kind, a healthy kind of jealousy, a fiercely protective love that seeks to guard the, and, and be vigilant about the exclusivity, the integrity of the relationship. And that's the kind of love that God has for you. And let me tell you this, that is a very encouraging and a very comforting thing. Because what it means is this, that God isn't just kind of, you know, flippant about your relationship with him. Like he could kind of, you know, it's, it's good if it's there, but if not, you know, whatever, right? And he'll do something else, right? It, it's not that God just kind of tolerates you and puts up with you, but instead what this means is that God is fiercely passionate about you. That is such good news. Let me tell you what, that is the heart of the gospel, that God is fiercely passionate in his love for you. His love will pursue you. He, he will not give up on this relationship with you. That kind of fierce, passionate love that God has for you, it's described in the Song of Solomon, right? In the last chapter, it says this, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It fla its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can floods drown it. That is the kind of love that God has for you. That is the kind of love that moves heaven and earth. That is the kind of love that moves the God of the universe to leave his heavenly throne and become one of us and walk our dusty streets and be despised by the very men that he created and be nailed to a cross. This is the kind of love that Jesus Christ had that caused him to give his life in order to redeem yours. Right? This is what it means that God loves you with a jealous love, and it's a good thing. It's the very heart of the gospel. And I will encourage you today, turn your eyes away from other people. Turn your eyes from what they have and what you don't, and turn your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And see that fierce love, that persistent love that he has for you, that caused him to do everything for you on the cross that caused him to do everything for you that he is doing day by day in your life as he shows you his love and his grace and take a stand for him
take a stand for Jesus Christ today and every day from here on out. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for that fierce, persistent, passionate love that you have for us. Lord, may you fill our hearts. May you transform us by that love, Lord, that we might love you in the same way. That we might have that heart for God that David had and that Jonathan had, that, that active faith that says, I don't just want to believe things are true about God in theory, but I want to be used by God. I want to step out. I want to take a stand. And sure, yeah, the chips will fall. But Lord, may we be those who take a stand with Jesus Christ. May we be those who, lead, who are willing to leave everything to follow him. We thank you, Lord, that you left everything to come for us. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.